decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hi, today it's a pleasure to welcome author and educator Anna LaPay. Anna is the author of the lauded environmental book, Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. You'll find links for that and Anna's other excellent books in the podcast section at reinventingthesupermarket.com. For those not already familiar with her fascinating career, Anna LaPay is a passionate and outspoken advocate for sustainable real foods and systems of food production. Anna is well known for her television documentary work and as a featured expert on numerous television and radio shows and her work has been featured by some of the world's best-known newspapers and magazines. As head of the Real Food Media Project, Anna's major focus is activism as she builds grassroots awareness of sustainability and real foods using the power of storytelling. And of course, some of you will know Anna LaPay as a founding principal of the esteemed Small Planet Institute. In this discussion, we're focusing mainly on issues around commercial messaging, especially for food marketing purposes. And in particular, we'll talk about the issue of targeting children with those messages. We'll talk about some of the more subtle ways in which messaging is targeted at children and just how this makes the current public communications environment a very difficult one for those who are trying to parent responsibly. We'll also be discussing some of the specific concerns around achieving informed consent for many of the products being sold, in particular those products that are actually unhealthy and yet which have a health aura. And we'll take a look at how health aura marketing goes well beyond the packaging of products when you're in the supermarket. I'm just also noting that while Anna and I mentioned Sigmund Freud's nephew Edward Bernays a few times in our conversation, we didn't really give you any depth of information on him and the role his work in refining the tools of propaganda played in modern history. So I'll make sure there's a link on this podcast page at reinventingthesupermarket.com where you can find out more information on Bernays if you're interested. So here we go, my recent discussion with Anna LaPay, Health Aura Marketing, Marketing Pester Power, Informed Consent Around the Foods We Consume, Food Policy Solutions, The Importance of Storytelling in the Process of Reconnecting to Our True Food Sources, and just where do we need to draw the line when it comes to sugar in this episode called The Insidious Art of Marketing Junk Food to Children. Anna LaPay, welcome. Thanks so much. It's really good to have you here. Anna, when I first encountered your work, you were actually talking about Edward Bernays, who's a very interesting guy who's had a pretty big influence on the world that we live in. But um, you've had a pretty interesting career sort of even before I encountered your Edward Bernays uh, conversation. Um, and you've been talking about the marketing of products to children. I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about where that sort of came from and what inspired you to uh, have this discussion with people. Sure. Well, so yes, I'm glad you mentioned Edward Bernays. He's not exactly a household name to everyone, but for people who work in marketing, he really is. He was kind of the the father of public relations as we know it today, and especially of what I and many others call spin. So this idea of not just marketing directly to consumers, to people you're trying to reach, but doing that marketing in a surreptitious way. 
And for me, as long as I've been interested in food, I've been interested in this question of marketing and storytelling and education. For me, they go hand in hand. When I think about my concerns about food, of what we put in our body, how that impacts our health and the environment, I also think that goes hand in hand with how we are telling the story of food, how we know what we know about food, uh, how uh, how do we suss out what's what's accurate information and what's uh, what's just spin and misinformation. And so for me, I feel like a lot of my work as an educator and as an advocate for sustainable food and farming, it's not just about getting people to be conscious consumers of the food they consume, but to be conscious consumers of the media about food they consume. I love that you use the word conscious because conscious is a word that I'm using a lot. I use it in terms of how people are branding, how they're building their brands, how they're designing their products. And as you just said, how we choose to consume the media that's coming at us, how we choose to consume the um, the products and the narratives that are being thrown at us in the thousands every day. So one of the things that I have been really interested in looking at is this question, not just of marketing of food generally, but really looking at how the stories of food are told to children. And when I start talking about marketing to kids, a lot of parents I talk to say, well, parents should just turn off the television. They should just not let their children see those advertisements between episodes of their favorite cartoons. And what we know about marketing to children, to teenagers, is that it's actually much more complicated than that. And that actually children and teens are exposed to messages about food throughout their entire days uh, from the minute they wake up till when they go to sleep at night. And, and in so many of the places that they go to every day, it's much broader, much deeper, and I would argue much more insidious than just a, a straightforward advertisement between cartoons on Saturday mornings. Right. And you can't just pull your children out of society and <laughs> lock them in a in a box and wrap them in cotton wool and keep them right. out of all that so you there's a, a certain amount that you can control when they're in the home but as soon as you step out the front door that's when you are really going to be um, experiencing messaging coming at you from all directions and as you say an awful lot of that messaging is very very subtle it is. And, and what I would argue is that as a parent, as parents, we shouldn't have to be in a daily battle with controlling uh, in, uh, what those influences, those marketing influences are on our children, that there should be spaces and places that are 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 free of, of such marketing. I would argue the school should be one of those places. And yet in many classrooms across this country, children are uh, getting math curricula that uh, is sponsored by and uses uh, examples of uh, there's an Oreo cookie counting book and a, a Twizzler counting book for preschoolers. Uh, there's all kinds of curriculum that is produced by food companies that ends up in classrooms. Uh, there's also ways in which food brands market to children through uh, partnership and sponsorship deals with uh, school uh, school athletic teams. Uh, there was an effort, even um, a pretty egregious effort in, uh, in Florida, that McDonald's was partnering with a school district in Florida to advertise on the back of report cards going home to children. And were it not for parents getting outraged and joining forces with a group called the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood that forced the district to end that deal, uh, that, that advertising would have gone home on report cards. And so I think that... That's very there, upsetting. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. And that's just one example. I mean, we could we could spend the whole hour giving yeah, yeah. Of examples. Yeah. But I, I think it goes to this this question of what do we value as a society and where and when is marketing appropriate? Uh, I would argue that there's very good evidence we've known for decades that uh, children are actually um, uh, incapable. They, they don't have the neurological savvy to distinguish between marketing and information and that therefore all marketing that targets kids is inherently deceptive. And uh, I would argue as, as many are around the, around the country and around, around the world that there should be real limitations to what kind of marketing can be targeted 
related to children, and I would argue also to teenagers. Well, and and probably also to adults, I would say, as you know, I'm a brand strategist, and I've worked on uh, a lot of fast-moving consumer goods over the course of my career. And I've spent a lot of years trying to work out and understand what that fine delineation needs to be between what we would call in in branding positioning, which is all of those subtle ways in which we can allow a brand to be understood the way we need it to be understood, and and actual deception, because you don't want to trick people into believing things that they that really aren't true or that are um uh you know, just even slightly misleading about the product or the brand. Unfortunately, a lot of the industry has gone that way. I actually, when I look at the supermarket now, uh, particularly at the middle of the supermarket where you have all the packaged goods, what I see is uh, goods that are really, they're like a chimera. They're a, an impersonation of what real foods used to be. So right away, if you think about it, Anna, the, the minute you start describing any of those things as real foods, you're already misleading people because mm-hmm. they are devoid of nutrition largely and certainly um, contributing to cr- the crisis in obesity, uh, the crisis in diabetes. So the question becomes, where do you draw the line? Certainly getting rid of this notion of pester power, which is absolutely used. There's no question about it. Pester power is out there. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, and I think this is where for uh, a lot of companies, maybe regulation is a dirty word, but I actually feel like regulation can be seen as a, as a friend of brands uh, because it really forces companies to all play on that same level playing field. And, and so I feel like we've really do a disservice to brands that are trying to do the right thing in the marketplace by not having really clear lines, as you as you as you put it, kind of lines in the sand about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, uh, and um, and therefore the brands that are trying to really be honest and present themselves honestly are up against brands that that aren't doing so. Uh, to me, there are a lot of lines that I think are really. I don't find them very controversial and I think should really be drawn in the sand. And I think I mentioned this earlier. I think one of the lines that should be drawn is that brands and marketing uh, have no place in public schools. It's not, it's not, um, it's not appropriate to be using public schools where children have to go, um, yeah. where we want children to go uh, to be marketing to them. I, uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, was contacted by a mom in Kentucky who uh, was shocked when her elementary school uh, age daughter came home from school one day to say that she had just been at an all-school assembly with Ronald McDonald. And it was a McDonald's promotion where they send Ronald McDonald, uh, uh, or obviously guys dressed up like Ronald, into schools for all-school assemblies on, on seemingly really enough uh, positive themes like, you know, community or we should all be reading or these really kind of positive messages. But you cannot deny that that's a form of marketing by McDonald's Corporation into schools. And, uh, you know, that to me feels like a very clear line that we can draw. And um, and, and yet, you know, as, as, as we can see with the Ronald McDonald uh, School Assembly Program or other McDonald's programs in schools, you know, that line is, is currently uh, not very clear. I, I completely agree with you on this. Uh, it's absolutely the a program such as the one you just described is absolutely marketing. It comes out of a marketing budget. So it's absolutely considered a marketing touch point. But more so, those kinds of programs are specifically designed to create lifelong consumers of products. And with that notion that if we get in and get them young, they'll always consume this product. And it's one of the, uh, I think, one of the very disturbing uh, trends that emerged probably in the late 20th century. There wasn't such a trend for it earlier than that, but it's um, maybe a bit with Crisco in the (laughs) beginning of the 20th century. I think Crisco really uh, was the brand that that got up and running with this, let's create a lifelong consumer out of you. But uh, McDonald's have really turned it into an art form. 
in terms of getting children very young. Of course, they're not the only ones. Right. And I think that's where, you know, again, you were sort of asking where these lines could be drawn. I feel like that's, you know, we could stick stick with McDonald's as a brand example say so there's this question of uh you know do brands belong as a marketing force in public schools and i would argue no um but also you know what is that um what is the line to be drawn around when and how it's appropriate to market to very young children and again i would say that uh we we know that young children as i mentioned earlier are incapable of detecting the difference between marketing and uh, uh entertainment or information and um and so therefore we should be protecting them and protecting those young people from uh, from that kind of marketing that is inherently deceptive. And yet you have a brand like McDonald's that has uh, uh, innovated, you know, with that quote unquote innovated uh, um, marketing like their uh, their website, uh, their their sort of signature website for children that uh, was uh, Ronald McDonald for many years and now is happymeal.com. And uh, a lot of the games that you interface with on that site are definitely geared toward preschoolers, definitely geared toward children who don't need to even be able to read. And they're all about, as you described it, really inculcating that lifelong consumer. Um, You also see, of course, their other uh, work they've done with their Happy Meals, where they've partnered Happy Meals with uh, uh, beloved uh, cartoon characters, toys. And again, I feel like that's a line we could draw and we can do that through public Policymaking, like uh, in San Francisco, California, uh, there was an initiative to pass a law that said, "Look, if you don't meet these very basic, uh, very kind of minimum health standards in a meal targeting children, you cannot pair that meal with toys to lure children in to eat unhealthy food that will have lifelong consequences." So, you know, so I think that there, those are some of the other lines that I would draw, and uh, you know, using McDonald's as an example of one of the brands that's really seen that there is real power in trying to build that lifelong consumer through what I would describe as really deceptive uh, marketing to children. Yes, uh, you raise a couple of great points there. You know, one point that's in my mind as you're speaking is, you know, how puritanical can we be with our children in, in the meantime? And the other point really is just the terrible degraded sorts of products that are being sold as food anyway and the the entire issue of supply chain and all of the damage that's being done all the way from the land right through to the human being who consumes this degraded product at the end so um, let me go to the first question is you know you're a mum right so how puritanical can you be with your children in order to save them from these uh, because these marketing programs won't go away overnight and I can tell you as as someone who has worked in the industry that even when the regulations go into place that great teams of people will arrive to understand exactly what the legal definitions are of everything um, for instance, packaging is basically a legal document. So they understand the legal wording and then it's everything is phrased around the legal uh, terminology requirements and the regulations so that the still the correct impression or whatever the marketers are trying to get through to you are getting through to you. So it, they are going to get around it one way or another, because they've got an awful lot of people working on crafting single lines of messaging to give to get around whatever the regulations are. Yes, I mean, I think that absolutely you're you're right. And I think what actually gives me great hope is seeing my own children's evolution in their diet and 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 experiencing what it's like to, to parent in this food environment uh, and and seeing that you know we have, We have really good science that shows us that our taste buds and our taste preferences uh, are formed really early. In fact, there's great new studies looking at, you know, what a a mom eats, uh, you know, really informs kind of what children are are comfortable with and the flavors are comfortable with uh, as, as soon as they start eating. And 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 I've seen with my own kids this real openness to trying new foods. We live in Northern California where there is a robust, uh, uh, sustainable uh, mm. fisheries community here. 
my kids eat raw oysters and Dungeness crab, and yep. uh, we make our own, uh, you know, tuna sushi. And so they've been exposed to all of these flavors. They're really open to it. Um, but the second thing I would say I've seen with my kids is that, uh, you know, especially my my now seven year old, that if I explain to her why she eats what she eats and why we don't have soda in the house and, you know, why we don't drink juice. Uh, She has a level of sophistication, even at seven, that she appreciates being sort of brought into the story. So I don't just tell her what to eat and say, because mom told you, I say, look, do you like to run fast? Uh, Do you like to be healthy? Do you like to, you know, all these things that she gets real pleasure from by having a a healthy body and associate that with the foods I want her to eat that I know are good for her. And and then when we do have those moments advertisements, I use them as real teaching a, a moment. So uh, in our house, actually, she isn't exposed to that many um, advertisements, but it happens. Like I wanted to show her some of the uh, women's gymnastics from the last Olympics. And we were looking at some of the most amazing gymnast uh, routines, but it's on YouTube. And to, to in order to watch the videos, you had to sit through an ad from Coca-Cola. Yep. You couldn't fast forward. You couldn't leap over it. And so instead of just sitting there and watching what were, you know, I'll be honest, beautiful ads from Coca-Cola, we used it as an opportunity to you know, talk about soda and jump around a little bit and have a moment uh, to kind of have her build that awareness. And so I think that's the kind of thing that we need to do. Uh, and, and I'm seeing my own kids, uh, it's you know, really working in terms of their health and their, their diet and the choices that they're making. And I have to say, obviously, your children are pretty lucky to have such an informed <laughs> family and also to live in a part of the world where there's such a great choice of foods. Of course, we know an awful lot of children are living in food deserts and they have parents who really aren't very well informed. And so they're a bit behind the eight ball there. They're really going to be um, eating an awful lot of junk. Uh, what What are your thoughts about those children and what they need well, what can society be doing, do you think, to help them? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why I'm so passionate about the work that I do is because there shouldn't be, um, you know, the, the the health that my children enjoy should not be limited to uh, a certain class of person, a certain race of person, a certain zip code. You know, we all right. should be able to have access. I mean, it's the most you know, what could be more fundamental to a society than have healthy people, healthy citizens? And so that's why I'm so passionate about this work, because absolutely, there are so many people in this country who, even if they have the ability to afford to put food on their table, don't have access to healthy food. And then, of course, here in the United States, we have about 45 million Americans who need government assistance just to be able to afford the food to feed their families. Right. And so we, it's a, it's a total crisis. And, uh, and so that is definitely why I'm so passionate about this work and why I feel like that's where we need to have real public policy in place to ensure that there's a level playing field for families. And so it's not just certain families that aren't as exposed to marketing as others. And it's not just certain families that have access. And I've been really encouraged. Uh, one of the things that I find really hopeful and encouraged by is, uh, this uh, incredible um, movement now across the United States and really globally to look at what's what are innovative public policies that could help us really uh, uh, really move the needle on some of these big issues and and one of those policies I think uh, is particularly uh, holds a lot of possibility are, are sugary drink taxes so uh, excise taxes on distributors of sugar sweetened beverages that uh, would bring in a sustainable source of revenue to go into programs that are going directly to communities most impacted by uh, a food system that's full of full of bad food for us uh, and to really help those communities with education, with diabetes prevention, uh, with programs like school gardens. So right now, across the United States, there are communities that are looking at how to implement a sugar uh, sweetened beverage tax as, again, one of these potential strategies. Well, I'll just let you know that I've been quite vocally against sugar taxes, but not because I don't want to see the problem resolved. I give a lot of my time for free trying to resolve this problem and I work pretty hard on it in my general day-to-day life but simply because I feel that that the actual principle of the taxation is putting the cost onto the people probably least able to bear the cost when in fact 
a lot of the worst stuff, including sugar, is being heavily subsidized by the government in the first place. And personally, I'd prefer to see subsidies removed uh, at the policy level and those subsidies redeployed into assisting the communities directly who need help in order to get them uh, access to the kinds of really nutritious foods that they need access to. So, I mean, I'm coming at it a little bit differently, I guess, from the sugar tax um, people, but I still see it as redeployment of funds, but I'd prefer to see it coming out of the pockets of the manufacturers and out of the pockets of uh, the big ag industry. Yeah, well, I first of all, couldn't agree with you more that our, our subsidy and incentivization policies at that highest level, at the federal level here in the U.S. and in many countries around the world is definitely uh, uh, definitely part of the problem and is something that, you know, many of us are trying to figure out how to yeah. um, ha- how to change. But I see the sugar sweetened beverage taxes as kind of one of the tools in our toolbox. I definitely think that it uh, isn't, of course, the only path, the only solution. But the other thing that, that I have, um, that I feel about the way these taxes have been structured and rolled out to date is they are excise taxes. So they're not sales taxes to the consumer at the end point. Now, whether a distributor passes all of the tax burden onto the consumer is really the distributor's you know, choice. Um, but it is an excise tax. And so in that way, I feel it is different than uh, a sales tax, which would by design, put the burden on the shoulders of the people most impacted. The other thing I would say about it is that, you know, we know that uh, those people most impacted by sugar-sweetened beverages uh, are uh, some of our most under-resourced communities uh, who have, you know, disproportionate amounts of diabetes, disproportionate uh, rates of chronic disease. And so, you know, the the impact is is regressive in that way. Absolutely right. Yes. I, you know, but I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think we can agree on that there, there should be many solutions, yes. but I feel like what I've seen in the mobilization around sugar, sweetened beverage taxes at the local level is this is a tax that also, because of the way it's structured, can be passed at the municipal level. We can act on it at municipal level in a way that the subsidy system is a federal decision and, and there is so much influence on policy at the federal level by an incredibly consolidated food industry, by an incredibly politically powerful food industry, that to counter that power uh, is very challenging. And so a lot of us are looking at, you know, how do you make really progressive policy change happen at the state and local levels? I totally agree with you. I think in terms of actually implementing uh, regulations, the things that I would like to see which would promote, for instance, informed consent so that when you do purchase a a gallon of soft drink that you have some idea of just how much damage you're doing to yourself and how much sugar you're actually consuming uh, in that product. And that, of course, requires labelling regulation, as we've uh, already mentioned, those things are much harder to get through. And we are seeing the industry working um, really, really solidly to try and prevent uh, informed consent from taking place. And of course, that needs to be balanced with education so that when someone sees that there's 15 teaspoons of sugar in this drink, that they actually understand what the heck does 15 teaspoons of sugar mean to me in terms of my health. Absolutely. And this informed consent question is is a great one. And it's the one that I'm also really excited about some of the policies that are uh, being floated around the country to pass uh, a, a warning label on sugary drinks that would look a lot like uh, the black and white warning labels on, on cigarettes. Uh, but to to indicate to consumers that, you know, drinking this product is tied to obesity and diabetes. Uh, I know when I talk about this issue with people and remind people that, you know, a lot of people think of sugar-sweetened beverages as synonymous with, say, Coke and Pepsi, and don't realize that in a product like Honest Tea has, uh, you know, in some cases, as many grams of, of sugar as some sodas, or uh, my, I was just at a, a function that had uh, a Pellegrino uh, uh, soda uh, product that had uh, 32 grams of sugar in a can of the Pellegrino. So I think that it's oh my also goodness, that, that's a lot. I know, I know. Um, so, 
So I think it's, you know, getting people to see that, uh, to, to really reveal just how much sugar is in there. And then as you put it, I mean, what does a gram of sugar mean anyway? Getting people to understand that sugar isn't just an, an empty calorie in the sense of just adding to your calorie load for the day, but that we know so much more about how sugar impacts the body. We know about now an epidemic of fatty liver disease related to drinking sugar-sweetened beverages, and it's linked to also diabetes. And, you know, really, that's a big public education piece that, um, you know, when you look at the, the the billions that are spent by the soda industry in marketing and you know, a relative tiny fraction of that spent by our government to educate about diabetes. It's a real imbalance. And and it further raises in my mind the question of where do we actually draw the line when it comes to uh, an ingredient like sugar? Because sugar, of course, is is a traditional food stuff. I use the term food stuff and not food because I think sugar really shouldn't be counted as food, but it is it is certainly uh, classified as a food stuff uh, and can be sold as such ev- pretty much everywhere. So where do we draw the line on something that is a traditional food stuff from almost every culture going back thousands of years and certainly that predates the obesity and diabetes epidemics yet um, is causing so much damage at the moment. You know, I, I look at the small amount of sugar that's consumed in, in my home. I, I don't want it to disappear completely. It's, um, you know, I'm going to buy a bag of sugar probably every four or five years. But <laughs> when I go <laughs> for, the, for the people who visit me and want sugar in their tea or coffee, but uh, when I do go and buy a bag of sugar or when, on those occasions when I do want to purchase something that has sugar in it, I want to have the convenience of accessibility to that product, right? So this is a discussion that's going on right now in the in the boardrooms of a lot of brands, and I know, know that it's a discussion that I'm participating in, which is, you know, just where does sugar need to sit? What Where do we draw the line on it? It's sugar in particular is a really tricky one. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I just watched, a, I've been sort of diving into research on sugar, specifically around the sugar sweetened beverage tax work. And just watched a uh, a new documentary on the sugar on sugar and the sugar industry, and uh, one of the things that I was struck by, and of course I knew this abstractly, but to to see the data on it was how much now sugar is in savory products. Oh in yes, the marketplace, lots, right? <laughs> and it's something again, that I educate my daughter about all the time, where we look at you know the grams of sugar in cereal and breads. Um, and crackers. But I, I think that uh, this is this, you know, where I would draw the line around sugar is I feel like we should kind of reliberate sugar to have a place in our pantry to, to be used for sweet things. We just, my daughter and I just made oatmeal, coconut uh, muffins, and we put sugar in them. Uh, But I felt great about doing that because they're not eating processed food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so I know how much sugar they're getting, whereas a lot of people who are eating a processed foods diet where 75% or more of processed foods that are packaged in the marketplace now have added sugars in them, you know, you're getting that kind of hit of sugar throughout your day. Uh, or if you're drinking, you know, say you have a, 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 a sweet uh, coffee product from Starbucks for breakfast and you have an honest tea at a snack in the middle of your day, and you have a soda uh, at dinner and then you have, you know, another sugar, sugary drink. I mean, you can have dozens of grams of sugar in your diet without it really even, without even having a piece of chocolate cake. Uh, Absolutely so, uh, right. you know, I feel like, yeah, yeah. So I think it's really thinking about how do we, uh, again, your your point around informed consent. How are we? How are we as as um, as advocates? How are we as brands? And how are we as regulators helping consumers have that informed consent around how much sugar they're consuming? And that's why I was really excited to see uh, that evolution of the nutrition label, where you, you will see the added sugars on that label, uh, really clearly demarcated. And that is, I think, a great step forward for informed consent. And it's something that I think conscious brands um, should and could be much more transparent about those added sugars without having to 
wait for the government to, to make it so. Absolutely right. And some brands are doing that, of course, Anna. Some brands are out there already yeah. telling you what are the naturally occurring sugars in the product, what are the added sugars in the product. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the worst categories are not really interested in telling you about the sugars. And of course, starch is a sugar. And we know that starches is being used everywhere. We have uh, mm-hmm. a very high carbohydrate diet in um, in the developed nations, which is certainly contributing to uh, the diabetes and obesity epidemics. Mm-hmm. So in fact, it's mm-hmm. one of the things that I expect will come up in the future is it's not just about the sugars, it's about the refined starches that we're consuming mm-hmm. in the same products. If you look at glycemic index, for instance, bread is a lot worse than straight table sugar so if you satinate sugar off the spoon you have a lower glycemic response than if you eat a slice of bread that you've purchased from the supermarket yet we're in an environment in which bread is uh, is still being uh, positioned as if it's a very healthy choice and the question remains over how healthy it is and what are the ingredients that are going into it? What's the, how refined are the ingredients? But to me, there's still an awful lot of gray area there. Sugar's certainly been a good place to start. And I think the, um, I think getting the labels right, pulling out added sugars from the naturally occurring sugars, great first step. I'd love to see spoons full of sugar. How many spoons of sugar are in this product listed on every label? by regulation so that people get a visual impact statement of exactly how much sugar is in it. Yes, absolutely. I don't know if you saw that infographic that was going around, but there was a uh, infographic that had been generated that uh, took uh, typical breakfast cereals and their teaspoons of their little sugar cube worth of, of sugar in each of the typical ser- servings and essentially compared that to what uh, what a dessert with that same amount of sugar would be, whether it was a piece of chocolate cake or a bowl of ice cream. And, and essentially the message was a lot of children, this is children's cereal, a lot of children are essentially eating uh, dessert of how much sugar is in so many of the cereals. Well, absolutely. I think we get breakfast cereals, I think, are are probably one of the two big problem areas. I think the other big problem area is actually um, um, formula, milk formula for babies, which is very sugary. And, uh, in fact, a lot of milk uh, baby formulas have more sugar than any other single ingredient in them, and they kind of get babies (laughs) Stuff babies it's crazy. With yeah. all this sugar and then wean them onto high sugar breakfast cereal. Right, right. And then that's your, you know, that's your barometer of, of kind of, of, of how sweet something should be. I mean, it changes your, your expectation and it changes what your, you know, what kinds of flavors you appeal to you over time. And, um, you know, compare that to a, a, a child raised on uh, uh, breast milk and on no sugar cereals. I mean, it's a very, very, very different uh, start to one's relationship to food. So um, you're not actually, I'm just sort of trying to pin down a little bit where your thinking is around the products, the packaged products, certainly the processed mm-hmm. products that sit in the middle of the supermarket. I know I have some pretty strong opinions about them myself. Um, but you don't believe that they need to all go away. You you, uh, you sound like what you're saying is in, let's get the informed consent, let's get um, an understanding of what's in these products and let's uh, make sure that they don't make up the majority of our diet and especially the, uh, the diet of our children. Right. Well, so my, m- one of my recent projects, is uh, real food media, and our our as our name <laughs> implies, you know, our mission is really to help people understand both the real story of food and also the importance of eating real food, which we define as the food that you find if you're talking about, you know, the metaphor of the supermarket that you find on those, you know, around the edges. So it's trying to get people to re-embrace eating real foods uh, and not processed foods as much as possible, knowing that you know again, for many people, it's simply not possible for all kinds of reasons from 
budgetary constraints to, to time constraints. But you know, we have come so far uh, culturally away from uh, cooking from whole foods and real foods that it's really impacted our bodies and our diets. And so my real emphasis is, you know, how do we get people to eat real food? Uh, and, um, and then also, you know, a lot of our work is about uh, helping people understand the story of their food from seed to plate. So really bringing out of the shadows, a story of food workers, out of the shadows, the story of, of farmers, uh, of those who are producing our food to that, you know, out of the shadows, that story of the food system and that food chain. Uh, that's a lot of what our emphasis is. And then, you know, how do we work with allies and other advocates to, to uh, develop new policies that really uh, make real food the default as opposed to the thing that you have to stretch to find? Uh, one of the things I'm really excited about is uh, a policy that colleagues of ours uh, helped to design and pass at the city level in Los Angeles and now in San Francisco. It's called the Good Food Purchasing Policy. And the idea is it's a procurement policy uh, for school districts and for cities. I love enables, this policy. I love it's it. Awesome. Mm. Yeah. And it enables cities to not just have to choose the uh, lowest bidder uh, for the their public dollars for food, but uh, allows cities and school districts to look at food through uh, five values, and that's the value of nutrition, the value of, of environmental protection, the value of uh, 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 workers treated fairly and paid fairly, animal welfare, and local economies, and really looking at mm, you know, how do you support food that meets all those values. So it's these are the kinds of policies I mentioned that kind of the soda tax is a tool in the toolbox. <laughs> the good food purchasing policy is another tool in that toolbox. And it's one that's winnable. We're winning it. Uh, there's cities that are, are uh, exploring the possibility of passing it where they are. And that if it's passed, it really helps bring more real food into people's lives, especially people who, uh, who again, might not be able to access that food uh, at home in their own households. There's no question that this battle will be won, indeed. When I look at the major trends going on in certainly in all the developed nations in terms of grocery purchases, the number one trend that's being talked about right now and has been for quite a while, it's only getting stronger, is the shift to real food. It's the shift to better nutrition. It's the shift to foods that you cook at home. And while it's still, I don't think it is, um, has reached sort of the, the high point of the bell curve yet. We're still in the, um, early majority phase, probably the early part of the early majority in terms of, um, adapting, because this is really new for a lot of people. Um, I think that that change is just going to keep on happening. So, what we're seeing is we're starting to see supermarkets, we're starting to see brands, because let's face it, you and I and lots of other people, maybe the people who might listen to this discussion, probably can afford to go and shop at at um, farmers markets and all sorts of wonderful places. But for the majority of people in the majority of nations at, uh, in the developed world, uh, the supermarket is where they're going to go if they're lucky, a lot of them will go to a convenience store. So this shift is happening. There's no question that it's gaining traction. In the middle, though, of this shift is the health aura product, which <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> as people, uh, as, as the market shifts, you have a large percentage of the market who start to purchase stuff that is uh, is still very highly refined and processed and has had a nice health aura painted over the top of Absolutely. something pretty terrible. <laughs> and eventually a, a lot of those people will continue becoming more informed and start to buy better and better quality foods. But uh, health aura right. is an issue. It is. I mean, I think about my mother-in-law who uh, is, uh, you know, uh, uh really intelligent woman, uh, really tapped into these concerns around, uh, around health and the environment. And she, uh, was putting on weight and she, uh, and I started talking about, you know, what are you eating and where are you getting your food? And it turned out basically she was 
going to Trader Joe's and just shopping without really looking at the labels or thinking what she was purchasing because there wasn't just a brand that had a health aura, but the the supermarket itself, Trader Joe's, had this health aura to her. It's shocking. Yeah, that she could just get whatever she, you know, whatever was inside those sliding doors was, was, you know, a green light. And, you know, she, you know, once we started looking at the labels and she started really kind of stepping back a little bit, of course, you know, she kind of realized that she'd gotten off track in terms of her health. And she really shifted to cooking much more from scratch again uh, to really uh instead of buying the the package of, you know, some kind of processed nut mixture that had lots of added sugars and, and oils, you know, getting just some actual nuts. Yes. You know, <laughs> uh, junk you know, food we, can be organic. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've heard the same stories from, uh, from people that have, you know, come heard me talk and, you know, sort of told the same story about walking into Whole Foods. Well, once you're in those doors, isn't everything, you know, everything good to go? And my explaining that, of course, a lot of what Whole Foods sell is uh, chemically grown food. It's food that is highly processed with lots of added sugars. And no, you, you know, you need to bring that lens of real food to any place you go. Of, and I would say, you know, one of my theme songs about healthy eating is, in many ways, the most important choice you make is about where you shop. And then, you know, for those of us, again, who are lucky enough to have farmer's markets near us, if you choose that, you know, pretty much what you're getting at the farmer's market is great for your body. Uh, I'm lucky enough to live near a locally owned uh, supermarket that uh, has a um, an amazing cereal aisle that I could count on one hand the number of cereals that are, you know, off our list for what we could give the kids. Uh, they have uh, a great uh, uh, policy of, um, you know, not stocking their checkouts with candy. So I don't have to deal with the kid at the end of a long shopping trip begging me for the eye level candy at the checkout line. You know, so things like that, that supermarkets are our education places, places for, you know, teaching healthy eating. And you can either do that well as a supermarket or, you know, or do it poorly. But there are supermarket chains that are really starting to think about how to, how to, how to play that educational role in a, a really positive way. Certainly uh, supermarkets around the world at the moment, generally, I, I say generally, because it certainly doesn't apply to every particular supermarket chain, but they're, objectives are not aligned with the objectives of the people who shop there and they are I mean we just have to say that straight out they are not aligned they they will do what they feel they have to do in order to maintain their revenues and to increase their revenues but they will not um in general, they won't do anything altruistic. There's certainly supermarkets are incredibly tough. As something I have told uh, quite a few people in this um, podcast process is that, you know, the supermarkets are looking at every inch or every centimeter of shelf space. They're reviewing that shelf space every three months, maybe every six months, depends on the chain of supermarkets. And they're trying to optimize how much revenue they're getting out of that 10 centimeter chunk. And, you know, every four feet or eight feet has another person, another buyer responsible for that category in the store. And they are responsible for how much revenue is coming off that little bunch of shelves. And that's what their job rests on. Well, those, um, a lot of the things that you would want to see on those shelves are actually not the big money spinners, unfortunately. The things that uh, the supermarket right. wants to see on the shelf, the things that are capable of turning over an awful lot of um, sales are often exactly the things that you don't want to see on the shelves. And so it, to me, it, there's a, there is a going to be a, you know, it's a sort of a push-me-pull-you struggle of we have to, we have to have people like you out there working as hard as you do to help shift demand because until the, we get enough of a shift of demand, the supermarkets, forget the brands, there's always another brand lining up waiting right. to get on right. that supermarket shelf, right? But the supermarket might not be very keen until right. the demand is there. Yeah, and and we're starting, I, I would argue, I mean, 
looking at the conversations uh, among financial analysts who observe the supermarket industry, I mean, I feel like there's a real huge shift happening. And it's not just me and my uh, progressive real food bubble, but it's, you know, financial analysts who are having this conversation who are saying, look, you know, everyone was so afraid when Walmart got into the food business, you know, all every supermarket chain, you know, was quivering with, with fear. And if you look at how Walmart has performed in food retail, it's been a pretty abysmal story. They're not doing well. They are, uh, you know, really doing poorly, in fact. And the financial analysts who, you know, are experts looking at this are arguing that the reason why Walmart has, has performed so poorly is because it, as an institution, is so poorly situated to capture this real food demand, to capture this consumer interest in what, uh, you know, I've seen financial analysts uh, call the pure food movement. And so you start looking at, well, what supermarkets are doing well? Uh, you know, it's it, it's the, the many of the supermarkets, at least here in the United States, that are meeting consumers uh, where they're at in terms of their interest in real food. It's uh, uh, chains like Kroger's that is doing that well. Uh, Costco, for instance, uh, you know, is just just become the largest uh, 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 seller of organic products. And, um, you know, and so I think that you're seeing the supermarket industry kind of looking at this trend and asking themselves, is this a fad? Will it go away? Is it here to stay? And what does that mean for how we organize the store? And, you know, what I'm seeing when I'm out there, I, I give dozens of public events a year and, you know, really try to get to lots of different parts of the country. And what I hear from people is that there is this uh, you know, real growing demand for a different way of eating. And that when I talk to people who have made this personal shift for their families or for themselves, there is no going back. I mean, once you see what it feels like, the energy you get, the health benefits you get, the reversal of chronic illnesses that you see when you get off a high sugar, highly processed uh, food diet and you start eating real foods, you know, it's, people don't want to go back to that way of eating. And oh, and they so become I, evangelists for it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel not to, to pretend that we are, you know, anywhere close to kind of <laughs> turning the corner on this when you hear the Centers for Disease Control say that, you know, an average kid born today has a one in three chance of developing diabetes in their lifetime. That's that's grim. I mean, this is this is a crisis point. On the other hand, I feel like there are, real positive stories of, of how um, demand is certainly shifting. We're seeing uh, supermarkets respond. We're seeing brands that uh, don't just paint themselves with a, a, a healthy aura, but are truly, you know, tr truly in touch with uh, good nutritious food and, and supporting farmers. You know, you see those brands doing well. I mean, one of those brands that I, I think of um, as a real model here is uh, a brand called Organic Valley, which is a yes, farmer like co-op. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, they just surpassed a billion dollars in sales. This is a 25-year-old farmer co-op. Its mission is to support and grow uh, family farmers. And it is uh, its board of directors is made up of farmers. And it's uh, primarily dairy, but they have meat products and produce. And they're doing phenomenally well. And it's because, you know, they're the real deal. And, and consumers know it. And uh, in some cases, you know, some of their products are um, competitive at a price point and some other products are, are a higher price point and consumers are willing to pay for it because they know that they can trust the brand. It's not just, you know, a happy cow painted on a carton. It's real family farmers that are um, part of the company. So, you know, I think that the growth of a brand like that is a great example of uh, consumers really wanting to embrace uh, a way of eating that's, again, good for our bodies and good for farmers and good for the environment. I agree. And I think that the it's the notion that people out there who are um, who are starting to care more about the foods that they eat, just taking a little bit of time to understand that brand that I buy, that bottle of milk or whatever that item is, take a little time out of your day to understand, is it a is it a real brand? in the first place, because a lot of brands are cardboard cutouts, as as I think <laughs> of them, owned by uh, supermarket chains. This is a, a certainly in the health aura space, which are 
actually pushing to get cheap prices and they push back down the supply chain, kind of make things worse all the way back down the supply chain in order to give you a health or a promise. But you can't really influence those brands. They're pretty easy to spot because if you go online, um, you'll find they don't have a website. They There's no way to contact them because all they are is a, a name on a product that's being packaged up and put in the in the store for you. On the other hand, as you say, uh, wonderful brands like Organic Valley, are um, they are real people and you can understand that brand. You can understand, as you said, that this is why the stories are so important. A brand that actually doesn't have a story might mm-hmm. just be uh, sort of a fake shopfront <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. affair, but understanding that there are real people, the real stories, and you can go and you can influence those people. If you have concerns or issues, you can connect with them. You can talk to somebody, and you know whether or not they uh, they are impacted by that is is a different thing. But most good brands do take uh, your comments on board. So it, mm-hmm. that's about uh, going sort of circling all the way back to where we started in this conversation, which was about reconnecting with where our food comes from, because we're so disconnected uh, and have become so disconnected from our food sources uh, in the course of probably the last uh, 75 years. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's, again, what I'm seeing around the country is this real hunger for connection, um, hunger for those real stories. We started three years ago an international films competition for short four-minute and under films that tell stories of food farming and sustainability. The fact that there's so many stories have been submitted and that we're doing these pop-ups, people are hosting them all around the world, I feel like it's just a great example of of this point we were making about the interest in um you know in this work i just i wanted to ask you um if you could if you wanted to, if you were to give a message to uh packaged good manufacturers and the the brands that are producing goods that go into supermarkets what would you what would you say to them i think a lot of what we'd already discussed i mean i think i would say that it's really clear what consumers want. They want real food. They want honest information. Uh, I think the other trend we, we didn't talk so much about but is implied in the real food trend is a real growing uh, consciousness around toxics in the food supply and really wanting brands to uh, assess their uh, additives, uh, preservatives, yes. uh, really uh, this huge demand, growing demand for organic food that's far surpassing actually what the supply is. Absolutely, and there is. I feel like that's, yeah. And, and so I feel like, again, this is not a fad. The other thing I would say, you know, this is, uh, it's again, once you learn, <laughs> once you learn about this world of real food, once you learn about the real impact of toxics in our food, you know, there's no unlearning that. And so, uh, you are talking about a real generation that's coming up with this passion for real food that is will be lifelong. And so the, the brands that truly understand that, that are honest and transparent, are the brands that I think will do successful in this new marketplace. I couldn't agree with you more. It is about authenticity of not just of the product, but authenticity, I think, of the purpose of the brand. And I think the days of giant faceless uh, corporations who just want to spin a narrative uh, based on the thinking of Edward Bernays um, (laughs) all the way back in the early 20th century. I think those days are are going to draw to a close, not quite yet, but uh, certainly um, the demand is starting to shift and I think the supply chain is going to shift uh, very dramatically over the next few years in order to accommodate that demand. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That's certainly what I am seeing from my vantage point. Anna LaPay, I want to thank you very much for joining me for this discussion. It was really, really interesting and I'm just thrilled with the work that you you do. Uh, I'm um, I'm so grateful, actually, that there is a rising group of people like you out there uh, trying so hard to make a, a big impact on our um, food, our our food uh, networks, and the way in which we view 
food. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.